This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on in the UK? What the hell is going on in the UK is there has been pretty much, I think the proper word is implosion of the Conservative Party. I mean, it's just, so Alan McGuinness, who's an editor at Sky News, had the following tweet. He said, my son has lived through four chancellors, three home secretaries, two prime ministers, and two monarchs. He's four months old. I know, no, that, I saw that too. That was fantastic. That just says it all. And I mean, the greatest meme ever, and I really admire them for thinking this up, was what will last longer, this head of lettuce or Liz Truss and the lettuce one. Yeah, as Dmitry Medvedev uh, pointed out in a tweet, Got, former like, president of Russia. The Chinese and the Russians like to point out that, you know, democracy is not always great and sometimes it generates not great outcomes. The point about that is not, no, you're wrong. Democracy is always perfect. The answer is, it's still always better than what you have in Moscow and in Beijing. Thank you very much. And we see that, of course, in comparison to the Chinese Communist Party Congress that just finished. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, at, least oh, they, at least they didn't take Liz, Liz Truss out. <laughs> out of the meeting and like have at secret police escort exactly. take her out. That was the most amazing video yeah, was uh, for, for those who haven't seen it. At the Communist Party Congress in Beijing, sitting next to Xi Jinping, I, I think we should stop calling him the president. of General uh, Secretary uh, of the Chinese Communist Party. Or the leader of Communist China. His predecessor, Hu Jintao, was in the middle of the meeting, as before they began to vote, some security guards came and said, please come with me. And he was completely confused. He <laughs> leans over to Xi and is like, what's going on? And they walked him out and he hasn't been seen since. We don't know what's happened to him. We don't know why. And yet we, we saw Liz Truss out jogging. So we know. <laughs> she has not been detained. She has not been <laughs> detained. But no, seriously, look, this is our most important ally. This is the country that, you know, the United States stands hand in hand with on so many, not just national security issues, but on so many values, on so many systems. And I got to say, they look like a bunch of schmucks. What is going on there? It's perplexing. I mean, we need to understand a few things. I mean, so we, we think of Britain because it was, it was a great empire. You know, they used to say the, on the sun, was. sun never set on the British Empire. We look at London, great financial capital of the world and all the rest of it. Well, it's also the only G7 country with a smaller economy today than it had before the pandemic. That I've seen. That, and is, that, a, that, really... is, a, that is a stunning statistic. So this is, a, this is a country that's not doing well. Well, so look, just to sort of take a, well, to provoke you for a second, as you know, I enjoy doing. You always um, provoke a, me. A lot of people say that one of the reasons why the UK is in such an abysmal economic place is because of Brexit. Is because basically when they were part of the trading system of the European Union, when they were a part and parcel of that system, they prospered. And now they're out and the chickens have come home to roost. So is that true? It partly is true in the sense that not that Brexit was a bad idea because I was in favor of Brexit, but that it's certainly in the context of the pandemic has hurt them because you've got a huge, like we have here in the United States, we have the worst labor shortage in American history right now. There are something like between 10 and 11 million 
unfilled jobs in this country where we're bus- half of small businesses in America can't find workers. And so that's one of the reasons why you have inflation, because there's big demand and the supply side can't keep up. In Britain, you have a similar problem. And by pulling out of the EU, they don't have the foreign workers that used to have the freedom to come in and fill those jobs. So it certainly has contributed in that sense. But also, as I recall, they were going to merge up with us and have a free trade agreement with the United States. And neither the Trump administration or the Biden administration has moved an inch towards a free trade agreement. I mean, it was Churchill's vision was a commonwealth of the English-speaking peoples. We were at least going to have the economic equivalent of that with a free trade agreement. That hasn't happened. There's a lot of reasons for this. But, I mean, Liz Truss tried to do what would be really as a supply-side economics plan, cutting taxes and and cutting regulation, combined with a lot of sort of Biden-esque spending on energy subsidies for her voters. And she just did an awful job of it. It was it was abysmal putting aside the elements of the plan just incompetently executed and oh, and lost her tre- lost her treasury or the chancellor of the exchequer which is like their treasury secretary within you know a hot minute and then a hot minute later lost her home secretary i mean it really is a circus and one thing i want to explain to people before we bring on our guest is a parliamentary system really it has a lot of flex in it which is really great in other words if you win and your party has enough seats in the parliament then It's really up to you to choose your leader. And if you kick out one leader, guess what? The next leader is also going to be the prime minister, unless you lose a vote of confidence in the parliament. And, of course, Boris Johnson did such a bang-up job of getting an overwhelming amount of votes for the Tories that they have a very, very compelling majority. And so... They're not going to lose a vote of no even, confidence. Even though their whole numbers against Labor have dropped 37 points oh my uh, in the last month. There was an election held today. Labor would win overwhelmingly. Yep. And that would be bad. But if there were an election held today in the United States, then I think Joe Biden would lose overwhelmingly. It depends so, who his opponent would be. That, that is right. a topic for discussion. But I will say, <laughs> I, as much as I'm not a Joe Biden fan or, a, in this case, a Donald Trump fan, I have to say that I'm glad we're not changing leaders every three minutes. It is. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't want a parliamentary system here. Yeah. But, but this, un, this, there's a lot to talk about here, Danny. What the hell happened in Great Britain, and what is the Conservative Party there? What does it mean for us? You know, how does this fit into the conflict between the new populism on the right and the old traditional view? You know, Reaganite supply side, freedom loving conservatism. All these things are in play in Great Britain, and they're in play here. And so we've got a great guest to help us walk through all that. Absolutely. Jerry Baker, Jared Baker, but we call him Jerry, is the editor-at-large of the Wall Street Journal. I'm sitting here looking at his bio, and I can't believe how many things he does. He's got a weekly column called Free Expression that appears every Tuesday, a fantastic column. He's also the host of a program on Fox News. He's also the host of a podcast for the Wall Street Journal called Free Expression. He used to be the editor-in-chief of the journal and Dow Jones. Uh, Before that, he was the deputy editor. But he's been at the Financial Times, the Times of London, the BBC. I mean... This is a this is a really great guest <laughs> that we've got. I'm so happy he was able to spare the time. Here's our interview. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So Americans are looking across the pond and we're very confused. Uh, we just saw Liz Truss presenting her uh, credentials to Queen Elizabeth right before her passing, and we thought we had a new prime minister. And in record time, she is no longer the prime minister, and we have a new prime minister. To uh, coin a phrase, what the hell is going on? 
Well, you're absolutely right, uh, Mark, to be confused. The only, the only rational uh, and reasonable response to events that are unfolding in Britain is one of complete incomprehension and, and perplexity. I actually talk about it in my column in, in the journal this week and try to both explain the sort of the immediate factors that have got Britain into this place and then the deeper, the deeper factors that I think are at work. Look, the immediate problem is, well, so we, so we, we have to go back off to It's astonishing to remember that Boris Johnson was elected with a huge majority just less than three years ago, conservative majority of more than 80 seats. That's the largest majority for a conservative party since Margaret Thatcher. This after years and years, you'll recall, of kind of coalition governments, of conservatives with very small majorities, wrangling over Brexit, the Brexit referendum, and then wrangling over Brexit. And then suddenly Boris Johnson, like, in, you know, Alexander the Great, Gordian Knot style, comes in, gets Brexit done after a fashion, and wins this huge mandate three years ago. So then what goes wrong? Well, first of all, obviously the pandemic happens and that plunges, you know, all countries, all governments into a certain amount of chaos and uncertainty about what about how to respond. Boris Johnson's particular case, of course, Boris, uh, for all his many, many political talents, um, is, is a, I think, is, is, is not a man who's known for, for, for particularly high standards of behavior in terms of his, in terms of his being trustworthy <laughs> and in terms of his personal life. That was very diplomatic. And, and, <laughs> and over the last three years, he got himself into all kinds of scrapes, uh, the most notorious obviously being these parties that were held in Downing Street. Now, that seems a trivial thing to a lot of people, and I tend to agree with that view, that people think, why on earth should a prime minister have to go because he was holding parties in Downing Street? It, the problem was, yeah, and by the way, on a serious note, you know, this is a government that was imposing incredibly draconian lockdowns on the British people. I mean, even more draconian, I live in New York City, you know, even more draconian than the dreadful lockdowns we had to put up with here. And so for the government to be doing that at the same time as people were gathering in, you know, people weren't allowed to, literally were not allowed to see loved ones, while in, be in the room with loved ones while they were dying. And at the same time, it turns out Boris Johnson was holding these parties in Downing Street where people were getting drunk and eating pizza and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it was a bad look and it contributed to a sense that, you know, this was a man whose principles were not of the highest. So they kicked him out. They find, they got rid of him, as the Conservatives are entitled to do. That's the way the parliamentary system works. There was an election, and then, of course, comes along comes this trust. Now, I, I've got to be honest with you here and say, uh, give my own judgment here, although I think it's a widely shared one. I think what we've seen over the last two months is the fruit of picking someone who is so plainly, uh, utterly incapable of high office, really. And um, this is someone who's, grasp dramatically exceeded her reach and was just completely out of her depth. Now, the, the, the deeper policy issue at stake is she comes in, she wants to do a radical policy change, which many of us conservatives would, would support and agree with in principle, cutting taxes, uh, a massive cut in taxes, uh, really bolstering the economy, trying to get the economy growing. The problem, Mark, is that the timing was terrible. She chose to do that at exactly the moment, A, when inflation is rampant in Britain. Inflation is even higher in the UK than it is here. And B, at a time and in a manner that gave no indication of any sort of understanding of fiscal, uh, of any sort of fiscal prudence at all. They planned this big tax cut with no attempt to measure how there would be commensurate spending cuts or how it would affect the deficit or anything. And this was this was not very smart, to be honest with you. And the markets didn't like it. The markets reacted strongly. 
Uh, and then she did a complete 180-degree turn, literally within a week, as she was required to, fired her chance of the Exchequer, and then said she was going to preside over a policy which was the precise opposite of the policy that she said she'd been elected to lead. So this a new Iron was- Lady. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. As far you, it's a good, good. It's a good comparison, actually, because she, you could not get further from Margaret Thatcher, despite her ambition to be another Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was prudent as well as being radical and, and at times ambitious and bold. She was also prudent and pragmatic, and this was not pragmatism or prudence. It was kind of it was just recklessness. So, conservatives again, as they're entitled to do, kicked her out. Conservative MPs kicked her out, and now. And we had this extraordinary drama over the weekend of whether Boris Johnson would come back or not. And in fact, so now we have Rishi Sunak. Look, the larger picture here is of a party in shambles, of a government in disarray, of a party that's kind of lost its way completely, ideologically, politically, in terms of the leadership, in terms of its, the people who run it, in the terms of the people who are there. Uh, it's been in power for 12 years, which is probably too long. Part, parties tend to decay and corrupt. I mean, in a political sense, not in a financial sense, but certainly in a moral sense, even they tend to they tend to just decline over twelve years. And so, I think that's the larger picture. There's a deep uh, story which I think uh, which I'll go on to talk about, which is related to Brexit, which I think does have important resonance too here in the United States. But that's the immediate story. This is of a party that has lost its way, that is ideologically lost, that is presiding over a country that's been in you know some serious with the pandemic and inflation and the war. All the other problems has been in serious trouble for some for some time, and it is not really in a shape to govern the country. I do think Rishi Sunak will offer a degree of um, of stability and, and 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 at least consistency. Uh, it is a striking uh, election. He's the first ever person from the Indian subcontinent. Uh, he's not actually the first ethnic minority to be a, a prime minister because Benjamin Disraeli was Jewish and was Israeli in the 19th century. But he's the first. He's the first person of color, as the common term has it, be prime minister. He's the youngest prime minister uh, in more than 200 years. So he's kind of an interesting character in many ways. But I think his his main aim will be to be as boring as possible after the dramas <laughs> of the last three years. Well, so, after so, the dramas of the last three years, and he's pretty good at that, to be honest, because he's a pretty flat character as a former investment banker. He's not very charismatic. He's not very flashy. So he'll just try and steady the ship at least for the next year or so and see if somehow the Conservatives can dig themselves out of this hole. Okay, so first of all, they don't have to call an election until 2025, which we'll talk about in later questions. But the most important thing that I want to ask you about is something that you mentioned just now, which is they've lost their way. You know, this is a party, we call them the Tories, but this is the Conservative Party. You know, Liz Truss, for all of her... obvious lack of staying power and incompetence in management, nonetheless was talking about cutting taxes, cutting regulation, trying to help the UK dig out of the economic doldrums. Rishi Sunak came back and he's been placed in office pledging not to cut taxes. That's not very conservative. Is this in any way really a conservative party anymore? Here's the deeper issue that I was talking about and why it has, I think, such resonance and importance across the pond here in the United States. The fundamental problem underneath all this turmoil and the characters and the personalities and their various qualities or lack of qualities, the fundamental problem, Danny, is that is the party is continuing to deal with the implications of the Brexit referendum, in particular, the implications of the populism that gave rise to Brexit. 
Brexit, you'll recall, and, and you know, there are many, many, many differences between the UK and the United States, but there was this very important similarity between Brexit and Donald Trump, which is that the instinct of people who voted for Brexit was not just, and the type of people who voted for Brexit was not dissimilar to the type of people who voted for Donald Trump. That is, uh, and they were not traditional conservative voters, just as many not that many Trump voters were not con- traditional Republican voters. But what what happened with Brexit was you had a lot of working class voters who very strongly supported the idea of cultural nationalism, who liked the idea of a, of a of an independent United Kingdom, who wanted control over immigration. They were furious about the uh, uncontrolled immigration that was coming in from the European Union. They wanted to restore the nation's borders. They wanted to assert national sovereignty, and they wanted to leave the European Union. Very significant echoes there with, with Trump voters in the United States, both in terms of their social and cultural interests and over policies like trade and immigration and things like that. So, and then, of course, Boris Johnson, who was able to deliver Brexit, won that election, as I said, three years ago. But that big majority, in large part, because he got the support of so many of those kind of voters, people who had never voted conservative in their lives, but who saw the Conservative Party as the party that was delivering Brexit, was getting Britain out of the EU, was going to take control of immigration, was going to take you know, a tougher line in international trade and things like this. So they, this is what they wanted, a populist nationalism, and, and the Conservative Party stood for it. The problem, of course, is then the Conservatives had to somehow marry that with their traditional, as you described it quite right, their sort of traditional belief in smaller government, tax cutting, open markets, free trade, all of those things that Conservatives had long stood for both on both sides of the Atlantic. So... And that I do think is the te- so that's the tension. So, and by the way, that was perfectly represented by Boris Johnson, and then by Liz Truss. Boris Johnson, who'd won that election, came in uh, and and basically said, "We're not going to cut public spending, and we're going to increase public spending." Because all those people, all those working class former Labour voters who voted for us, the famous Red Wall you may have heard about in the north of England and the middle of England, voted in huge numbers for the Conservatives. They don't want us to cut spending and, and to cut the size of the state. They want a strong state. They want a strong communitarian country. That the, the, the whole sort of the instincts of Brexit, of nationalism, was to create a strong national community, a real sense of one nation. They want more spending on healthcare. They want strong welfare benefits when people get into trouble. And if that has to be paid for by higher taxes, so be it. So that's what the Boris Johnson approach was. The Liz Trusses of the world, backed by many people, you know, again, of your philosophy, said, well, this isn't very conservative. We're not, you know, we're expanding government. We're expanding taxes. Obviously, it was exacerbated by the pandemic. This is ridiculous. When This isn't conservatism. This is something completely different. We want a radical, deregulated, low-tax Singapore on Thames, people talked about. That's how Brexit, that's how we make Brexit work. Liz Trust came in. And met, unfortunately, as I say, the reality of the market when it came when it came in. I think Sunak is going to attempt some sort of a synthesis between those two sides. But that's why I say I think this has, for all the sort of the nonsense going on in the UK, this is why it does have international resonance because you are seeing the same thing being played out to a to a lesser degree, but to some extent in the United States, a new populism that is nationalist that does not want immigration, does not want free trade, you know. Remember Trump, one of Trump's big things was he, unlike every Republican conservative before him, he wasn't going to touch Social Security and Medicare. He was, you know, just, you know this was contrary to what Republicans, uh, to what conservatives have been standing for. And a lot of voters 
like that. And a lot of Trump voters are inclined in that direction. This is the tension with this new resurgent populist conservatism is challenging the old conservatism of free markets, free people, free trade, free immigration, free movement. And that is the tension. And I think that's a tension that's going to play out here as well as it is in the UK, with, I hope, not quite the chaotic consequences that they've had in the UK. Though, of course, you know, Donald Trump proposed the largest tax reform in 30 years and got it passed. You know, so he, he seemed to be able to marry populism with supply side economics. Do you think that's what his voters voted for? Huge corporate tax cuts? I honestly, I, I mean, I, I, I think that is one of the verdicts on the Trump administration, you know, which is quite a good one, is that his voters voted for something else. But what he actually delivered was, yes, the largest tax cut in 30 years, uh, which was not exactly what Trump voters really. I don't well, think they love the economy that it produced before the pandemic. It was, it was, a, yeah. you know, the economy was booming for the yeah, pandemic. Yeah, we can argue whether we can argue with that. <laughs> investment actually, the rate of growth of investment actually fell in the United States after the 2017 tax cut. So we'll have to. Well, we'll have to put that one aside. But yeah. Well, all yeah. right. Well, what Liz Truss proposed, you know, it seems bold and radical in maybe in the British context, but it really wasn't. I mean, she she basically was canceling a scheduled increase in the corporate tax rate, make permanent a temporary increase in the annual investment allowance for businesses. She was going to accelerate infrastructure projects, reduce the basic income tax by one percentage point to 19 percent, eliminate the 45 percent bracket for people over 150,000 pounds, which is not that much, that's a lot in Britain, and some energy subsidies. This this wasn't exactly the 1981 tax cuts. It wasn't even the Trump, uh, the well, Trump tax it, Well, cuts. I mean, actually, actually, as a proportion of the economy, it, is, it was exactly that. So the tax cut part of her plan was it came to about, about 35, 40 billion pounds in the UK. On top of that, she was proposing this extraordinary 60 billion pounds bailout to help people facing their energy bills. And again, look, the problem is, now that is significant. That would have been the biggest tax cut in Britain since 1972. Let's not with the energy subsidy. That would have been the largest single attempted tax cut as a proportion of GDP since 1972. So it was, it was a big tax cut. I don't disagree with you in terms of the merits, the, the actually the intrinsic merits of that plan. I think getting corporation tax lower is, is a beneficial thing. I think getting that high rate of income tax, especially in a competitive world in which, you know, People can, can move anywhere. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that. And I think lowering the basic rate of income tax is also a good idea. The problem, Mark, is that they had no plan. The, the problem was two things. One, the way in which it was presented, and two, the timing. They, yeah. they produced that plan two weeks after Jay Powell gave his Jackson Hole speech in which he said, we're now totally focused on cutting inflation, on getting inflation out, mm-hmm. and we're going to raise interest rates until you know it, it hurts. Uh, and the markets took fright at that. Bond yields around the world shot up by about 50, 75 basis points. Two weeks later, the U.S. had a terrible consumer price index number. Bond yields shot up even higher. Suddenly, after 10 years, really, of kind of people, bond markets kind of thinking, oh, there's no inflation in the system. We don't have to worry about anything anymore. Governments can go on spending money. Federal Reserve, central banks can pump liquidity into the economy. None of this is going to be a problem because interest rates are going to be zero forever. Suddenly, markets did a complete about turn and, and were suddenly in vigilante mode and saying, well, we have to be on the lookout for anybody here who's going to be doing anything that looks even vaguely reckless. And then along comes Liz Trust literally that week and comes out with a plan for the largest for the, for the largest tax cut and, the, and a huge spending increase, this massive bailout of, uh, of people on their spending bills, which is going to undoubtedly, in the short run at least, increase the deficit without any attempts to sort of any kind of measures as to how they were going to get spending down. So, again, I don't disagree with you, Mark, in principle in terms of 
certainly don't disagree with you in terms of it's the right thing to do to cut taxes, to get a more dynamic economy. But you have to get your timing right. I mean, even Ronald Reagan famously raised taxes. We know that very, very well when the timing demanded it. And this was just terrible timing. So here's the question then. Since she blew it with her tax plan, there's probably no appetite for going back to the trough to a supply side plan. Britain is the only G7 country with a smaller economy today than it did in the fourth quarter of 2019 before the pandemic hit. How are the conservatives going to grow the economy? And is, well, that, and is that, that their mission? Or is it just to yeah, contain no, inflation? I think the first thing to do to grow the economy is you just to get inflation under control. We, we are right now... The UK has, and in the next sort of the next year, I think the US will have stagflation. I don't think it'll be. Thankfully, it will be on the 1970s scale. But the UK economy is almost certainly contracted in this current quarter, in the last quarter, and probably in this quarter too. And the UK inflation rate is over 10. percent I think again, I think the US is going to have, you know, high inflation and almost certainly uh, contracting economies and stagnant economy. In those circumstances, what you have to do, unfortunately, is the first task has to be to get inflation down. Because we saw, we went through this again in the U.S., you know, strikingly from, you know, inflation really started to pick up in the late 1960s in the United States. We had repeated attempts both by Democratic and Republican administrations to grow the economy by pumping uh, money into the economy by a combination of tax cuts and public spending, and it didn't work. It just fueled inflation, and instead of that trade-off that people talk about between inflation and unemployment, we got the worst of both worlds. We got higher inflation and higher unemployment, and I think that's exactly where we're headed now. The only way we could actually deal with that was to squeeze inflation out of the system through very, very aggressive monetary policy, and that's what's, that's what it's going to take. And by the way, central banks have been asleep at the wheel for the last year and are finally waking up and are going to deal with it. So so the way to get growth is, first of all, you have to get inflation. You, you can't expect governments to suddenly be able to, through deficit financing to be able to deliver huge, huge increases in growth in this inflationary environment where supply is so tight. And any money that the government pumps into the economy, as we've seen in the United States, I mean, let's not forget the Biden administration's responsibility for the inflation that exists in this country. What did the Biden administration do in the minute they came in with the Democratic spend. Congress? It passed that, spend. that two spend. Trillion. Spend. Yeah, but the point was it, it spent the it vast checks. bulk of that $2 trillion. It was, it was another form of a tax cut. It just gave people $600 or $1,200 handouts, giving them extra money. It didn't matter. The point was it created money. In, a, in circumstances in which there was no supply for bill, there was insufficient supply for people to spend that money on. What happens in those circumstances? Prices go up. It will be the same right now if you attempt to pursue a policy which is going to increase the deficit by putting money into people's hands when supply is so tight and inflation is such a problem, you're just going to get more inflation. So I think the answer, Mark, is you have to get inflation down. You have to use monetary policy primarily to get inflation down. And then absolutely, you then the Britain does have to have a radical change in its economic model. I do think it has to go to lower growth. It needs probably, I mean, again, this is where it gets tricky in terms of the politics, but it does need more trade. It probably needs to do a trade deal with the EU. It certainly needs a trade deal with the United States. That will help growth. That won't be popular in many ways at home because that will again be characterized as jobs going overseas. But free trade, by the way, something else it probably needs. And again, this is back to this tension between modern populist conservatism and traditional conservatism, it probably needs more immigration. You know, you've got labor shortages in the UK, terrible labor shortages in the UK, which have led to really weak productivity performances. And those labor shortages are getting worse because Britain now no longer has the unlimited labor uh, migration from the EU. So, so Brexit is contributing you, you, to inflation. Uh, no doubt. I'm, I'm absolutely sure of that. Yeah. 
So let me ask you a little bit about the system. You know, for us, we in the United States are sort of used to, you know, okay, you've got four years, then maybe you get another four years, then you're out. As you point out, you know, the conservatives have been in charge for 12 years, but on top of that have a remit from the voters to stay until 2025. You have a great couple of lines in your column this week. It says, you know, I've said this before, but part of the reason is a dizzying collapse in the quality of our leaders. Across the West, we are led by too many inferior people who shouldn't be left in charge of a Lego set, let alone the entire <laughs> edifice of national government. And yet, you know, we've got this clown car happening in the UK in which we have different PMs emerging. Oh, we have a clown car here too, Dick. Yes, we do, but a slightly different one in appearance. I have two questions here, but should the Tories call elections? Is that the right thing to do? It's a good question, and a lot of people are talking about that. I I mean, I think that, um, I think the answer is no, because I think, again, I think letting Labour in right now, Labour would win in a landslide, and in a way that would not only be a landslide and enable Labour to do anything it wants, but actually would also probably mean at least 10 years of Labour government. And again, I, I think that Labour is, a thank God, not the party that it was under Jeremy Corbyn, but it's still, a, it's still a progressive party subscribing to all the woke nostrums of our time and you know committed to huge increases in public spending and some nationalisations and all that kind of stuff. I think that would be, just be a disaster for the country. Conservatives need to unite around Rishi Sunak, at least get the country through this next year or two, and not run the risk of turning the, I mean, as bad as they are, you know, I'm, I'm a sort of a skeptic about government. I, I'd rather government that was absolutely incompetent and did nothing rather than a highly competent, but, but rather malign one. I'd rather incompetent conservatives than competent socialists. You led me exactly to my other question. So, right, he will certainly not appreciate this if he ever hears this, but Jeremy Corbyn, the former head of the Labour Party, always reminds me of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in Iran. Would he in Paris? He would think that you were flattering him. <laughs> well, mazel tov to both of you then. But, but I mean, he was... Except Corbyn hates Jews more. Well, that that may actually be true. But the funny thing is, of course, these were sort of your fever dream of the worst kind of leader. They said everything that, you know, we always thought they thought, but never said. They hated all the people who made them pariahs rightly. And now we've got Sir Keir Starmer, who we never talk about. I'm willing to bet that everybody who could have mentioned who the head of the Labour Party was in the UK three years ago, could not mention to you now who is the head of the Labour Party in the wake of Jeremy Corbyn. So tell us about Labour. I mean, they're as bad as they were, but just with a better figurehead or what? No, they they definitely aren't. So just for background for your your listeners, yeah, Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, far left leader of the Labour Party between 2015 and 2019. He was, he presided, whether he's Personally anti-Semitic, as you say, probably is, but he certainly tolerated disgusting anti-Semitism from many, many people in the Labour Party, associated himself with terrorist groups around the world, from, you know, Palestinians to Iranian-backed militias. He was always seemed to be on the side of, you know, the Russians in any disputes that had. He was against NATO. He hated NATO. He favoured the IRA. He was like a man in he or, and he was a Marxist, and he was a Marxist, basically, in, in terms of economics and thought that the government should, should, should take over the entire economy. He lost that election that we talked about that Boris Johnson won in 2019 and was kicked out by Labour. And they, in, by contrast, they have this very kind of milk toast, 
Turkey Osama, as he's called it, is knighted. You know, you get knighted in Britain for all kinds of reasons. In his case, he was the director of public prosecutions, which is a non-political job, which is the equivalent, though, of attorney general. It's the sort of chief, the person really in charge of deciding what prosecution, what major prosecutions are made. And as a result of doing that job, it's non-political. You do get a knighthood. So he got a knighthood, and then he became a Labour MP, and then he becomes a member of the Labour convention, and now he's the leader of the Labour Party. The party is definitely, so it's, it's purged the anti-Semitism, which is good, and it has actually, it's got, still got an ongoing inquiry, actually. Jeremy Corbyn himself has been expelled from the party, from the parliamentary party, which is also good. And some of those extreme left people, extremely nasty types, have also been kicked out. So the party has moved significantly away from that. The problem is that, and I think this is something that, you know, the conservatives do, the point the conservatives do try to make, and they have not succeeded, but they need to make it more effectively, is that Keir Starmer was very happy to serve under Jeremy Corbyn. He was actually one of the key members of Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. He backed Jeremy Corbyn in all of these things. He did express mild criticism sometimes on the anti-Semitic stuff, but he basically supported Jeremy Corbyn on all of his policies, from nationalization to higher taxes to skepticism about NATO to hostility to the United States and what it was trying to do pretty well everywhere in the world. And then, fortunately, again, that program gets roundly rejected by the by the British people in 2019. And then we're asked to believe that, oh, well, that's OK. You know, I'm now, you know, I'm now the new leader and I've rejected all that. I think it's reasonable to ask your question, really, which is how much has really changed? I mean, how much I mean, if you if you supported these policies Three years ago, we're not talking about when you're a kid, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. We all said some silly things, you know, probably back in our youth. This is just three years ago. Why does the, how, how are we expected to believe the party has really changed? And he is surrounded by some extremely left-wing people uh, at the top of the party, some who were very close to Jeremy Corbyn. So it's a legitimate question, Danny, and I think it's something that I think will, you know, for the last six months since the Boris and Liz Truss traumas have been unfolding, all attention inevitably has been on the Conservative Party's woes. But I think, again, if things do settle down a bit, then we'll maybe have an opportunity to uh, interrogate the Labour Party a little more than we have. Let's talk a little bit about the lessons for America, because, you know, it's all about us. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always. So, I mean, we just had, you know, what appears to be a conservative implosion in Great Britain, a messy leadership fight. We're a few weeks away from a midterm election, and there's going to be a leadership fight for the Republican Party here in uh, the United States. You know, could it happen here? Could we have <laughs> this kind of an implosion? And what lessons can we take from this experience for the coming leadership battle in the United States in the Republican Party? I mean, we've already had that kind of implosion, I think, and, I'm, and it worries me, and I think it's go- and it's ongoing. I mean, the, the elections in two weeks' time are going to be absolutely fascinating. Everything seems to be teed up very well now for a big Republican victory that looks like the House is going to be a big... Not according to the Democratic pollster I was on TV with on Sunday, but uh, yes. Or Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I'll, I'll, back, I'll back you rather than the Democratic pollster down any time. But, um, and, and of course, that's going to then immediately give way to the question of, you know, what do the Republicans say? What do they do with this majority? And B, of course, who leads the party? And I think that all the indications are that Donald Trump is very, very well set. I think... I think there's going to be a lot of attention paid to these candidates that Trump endorsed uh, in the primaries. You know, a few weeks ago, 
Many of them were looking like they might be suspects. Set Metmodog in Pennsylvania, uh, Brooke Masters in Arizona, J.D. Vance in Ohio. It looks increasingly like they might win all those. If, if Trump gets pretty well a sweep. Thanks to Mitch um, McConnell. Thanks, thanks yeah, to well, tens yeah, of millions of dollars. I haven't seen Donald Trump giving any money to uh, those candidates in large numbers. I mean, forty Mark, million dollars. You are such dollars. an ingrate, Donald. Trump, but, the Donald's but, backing is worth gold. I tell you, gold. Forty million dollars we're spending in Ohio to to save JD Vance. But Mark, uh, what does that say to his supporters? And I'm not necessarily one of them. What does that say about Donald Trump's judgment? Yeah, he can actually get all the credit. Without spending a single, which you will, without without spending Genius. a single penny, that's what that's that, that is the art of the deal, Mark. That's, 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 that's how you do it. So look, those Trump-backed candidates are going to win. Almost all of those House Republicans who voted to impeach him are going to be they've either resigned or going to be you know or been primaried or are going to you know uh, maybe one or two of them will scrape back in. Looking at the polls. Everything I see, everything I hear from people close to Trump is he fully intends to run again, and he'll get it. And I think. You know, that's on on the larger issue of the stuff we've been talking about, the populism versus the kind of traditional conservatism, that's a source of tension because some of those people that, you know, who support Trump very strongly, people like, look, take J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance is about the most interesting, right? Thinks we shouldn't be doing anything to help Ukraine. Strongly, you know, against uh, more free trade and all this kind of stuff. And that's going to be a tension with the vast majority of Republicans in the Senate that I think is going to play out in similar ways to how it's played out in the UK. And then, of course, what you have here, which you don't at least have in the UK, is the whole specter of January 6th hanging over everything. And the fact that you know, the Republican Party, whatever its great strength in policy terms and whatever their Democrats' weaknesses in policy terms, may be about to nominate someone who fundamentally tries to lead a an extra constitutional attempt to overthrow the results of the last election. Now... It's done about you, but I think that is a problem. And I think that, you know, we're going to have to see how that, you know, how that plays out. Look, I've mooted this possibility before. If, you know, if Ron DeSantis pulls off a double digit win in Florida and, you know, maybe one or two of those Trump back candidates don't do quite so well, then maybe that changes the complexion a little bit. But right now, you know, I think the Republican Party has got a, you know, battle for its soul, really. And, you know, we're going to have to see how that plays out. And, it, and as I say, it could play out in even more dramatic terms or in less in less classical, but rather more disturbing terms than the way that, that the battle's been playing out in the UK. I want to ask you about something that's my pet nerd topic. First of all, almost everything that Diddy says is her pet nerd topic. Okay, go on. <laughs> that's just because I'm very erudite. Um, I'm dying to... Uh, no. So, well, no, my pet topic actually relates to this difficult position that conservative populists have found themselves in that you rightly describe as sort of, you know, being elected by people who don't actually believe in the same conservative tenets that a lot of the party theoretically stands for. But I mean, isn't this part of a larger story that we see not only in the United States, but all across Europe and frankly, across democratic Asia as well, which is the sort of the collapse of the right in general, that conservative parties, nominally conservative parties like the CDU in Germany, but in other places have drifted so far to the left that they are basically center left parties at this point, and that there is nothing left for people to vote for on the right, except for these sort of extremists like, you know, Alternative for Germany or or Marine Le Pen or whoever else it might happen to be. I mean, how do we in the long term fix this problem 
if in fact the solution in the UK is to go back to the old leftist centrist sort of guy, you know, who, who may or may not be conservative, but that's okay. It's a good question. It's a topic for a much longer discussion. But my two cents would be right now is the terms of political debate have shifted, haven't they? That's the point. We've become that the, all the axes of political debate, if you like, have shifted. We are now so much more focused. We've become much more focused on the cultural, the cultural axis of politics, right? So, and I feel very strongly about this, and you know this from my writing, and I know you two do too. That this, the woke war that we have been fighting here and indeed in Europe and around the world, the elevation of race and gender and environment and these and transsexual issues and culture and all these identity issues as the central driving force in the progressive's agenda has I think shifted the terms of debate in a way that has, and again, I'm I'm more hopeful than you are, Danny, about this because I think the backlash to that is felt is across the sort of what what used to be the political spectrum. That is that I think, and this again goes back to the populist point, that working class people, working class people, by the way, of all colours and ethnicities and backgrounds or whatever else, are essentially horrified by so much of this, uh, so much of this agenda. So they are actually they are seeking political leadership from people who will oppose it. And uh, you know, by the way, you can throw into this the sort of you know no borders, um, you know pro-immigration, open borders, uh, global governance, all this kind of stuff. So this is where the political action is all around the West. You know, whether it's Georgia Maloney and her party in the Brothers in Italy, whether it's the AfD as you say in Germany, whether it is. You know, the kind of the right of the Conservative Party in Britain, which is very aggressive on these cultural issues, whether it's Marine Le Pen and the Nationals rally in, in France, whether it is Trump, Donald Trump's Republican Party. So I think, in a sense, that you, you know, you're kind of bemoaning the, the loss of a kind of what used to be, you know, and I would agree with you, what used to be sort of, you know, small government, you know, dynamic, let's support freedom, let's emphasize freedom both at home and abroad. That's been supplanted by this fight against woke progressive ideology on all these fronts. As they everything from identity to national, you know, to personal identity to national identity to sovereignty, and all of these things. That is the defining fault line in politics, and that's and so the right and the left, if you like, have sort of realigned themselves around that cultural axis. So that, you know, that we, and, and that's, again, where, where I think, you know, I, and again, I feel comfortable as a conservative on the anti-woke, anti-progressive side of that divide. And I think that's making maybe, but that is making us have to seek common cause with people who wouldn't perhaps necessarily share our views on some of the economic or some of the more traditional conservative lines. But I do think that is the, that's probably the principal reason why, what you rightly describe as the kind of traditional conservatives are in retreat or increasingly kind of being aligned with uh, with the sort of center left. Yeah, I, I my hope is I don't think these are mutually exclusive. I think that wokeism is a threat to freedom. And so if you're a conservative who believes in freedom, then wokeism and, and this, these radical right. ideologies are fundamentally undemocratic. Uh, and right. hostile to all the principles on which our country is founded. So, you know, I, I think we've got to find a way to marry the two. But that's for, as you say, that's a topic for another podcast. And we'll have to have you back on to talk about it. But I want to bring it back to Britain for our exit question, which is 
what does all this mean? What's happening in Britain right now for the and and quite frankly here in the United States? What does it mean for the special relationship? For all the chaos and shambles of it, I think one can say a couple of things. Firstly, on a very practical, immediate question, whatever their flaws and lunacies and failings over the last couple of years, the Conservatives have been absolutely steadfast in terms of uh, NATO. Um, as you well know, Britain has been, after the United States, the strongest supporter of Ukraine uh, in terms of not just rhetorically, but of course in terms of financial support, financial and military support. And Liz Truss, for, again, for all her faults, was absolutely robust in that. Boris Johnson, I think, is the most popular foreign politician in Ukraine because of his support for Ukraine. And I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever, because it's where the Conservative Party is, that Rishi Sunak will be exactly the same. They'll be very, very strongly supportive of NATO, of standing up against Russia, of standing up against China, by the way. That's also very important to say that the Conservatives are uh, are actually absolutely aligned with uh, frankly, much more closely aligned with with the bipartisan foreign policy consensus in Washington, if we can call it that, than they are with either the Trump, Trump or the left here in being strongly against Russia and being strongly supportive of NATO and believing in that. So that's so that's one piece of good news. And on the larger front, look, I think you know it's a, it's a more philosophical point, but I think the values that Britain and America still share. However chaotic things, and by the way, I would say this is true, even, God forbid, if Labour do win the next election, and they probably will win the next election, I don't even see that changing very much. But, you know, Keir Starmer, again, is expressed very strong support for NATO. As I say, as we've discussed, there are some reasons to be concerned about some of the people who've been around the Labour Party for a time. But the mood of the British people, and and this is is the end what counts, is they are strongly pro-Western alliance. They are strongly pro-US. They're not fans of Donald Trump, I have to say, but that's partly because sometimes partly because partly because they're right, but partly because also the media the media sometimes does uh, do a job of misrepresenting some of the stuff that's going on over here. The British people understand how important the United States is and they've seen that particularly in the last year over Ukraine and they are and they see it too over over China. And I do think, I don't know about you, Dan, you you you, you both a great foreign policy expert, you spend a lot of time dealing with it. I, I, I'm increasingly worried that uh, as I look day by day at events in China and Russia, that we are headed into, if not direct conflict, then a much, much darker, darker set of international circumstances. And I think the silver lining in that darkness is that Britain certainly, some European countries, certainly Eastern European countries, but Britain certainly will be strong, will remain strongly aligned with the United States as that tension increases and as the um, as the situation deteriorates. So I think that in all this in all this gloom about what a mess conservatives are in, what a mess the British political system is in, what a mess the British Conservative Party is in, I think that's the one bright spot that I think this 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 global. This increasingly tense global climate and this increasingly clear conflict we're facing between our values in the West and this powerful alliance of authoritarians, I think the British and the Americans are on the same side. Well, that's an optimistic note on which to end. Thank you, Jerry, so much for your insights and, and, and for, for being game to take the time. No, really. yeah, great pleasure. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Danny, it's all about us. <laughs> Not you and me, but America, the country but really we you, love. But really you and me. <laughs> so w- this is interesting. I mean, in terms of 
coming back to you know what we care about the most, you and me, this is really interesting for conservatives in the United States because we really do have this problem that I think Jerry laid out very nicely, which is that there is a new coalition of voters who vote for Republicans who really aren't, in the traditional sense of the word, very conservative. They're not small government. They're not low taxes. They're not pro-business. They're not pro-trade. They're not pro-immigration. They're not really conservatives very much at all. And how you manage that as a leader and still get reelected and still get voted in and still have an agenda that actually serves your constituents is something really hard. We actually don't have a conservative party in America anymore. I don't think that's a fair characterization of it. I, th- I think that a lot Which of... wrong. As usual. Of course, because I don't think that they're not conservative. I think they're conservative in a different way, and I think they're conservative in a lot of ways. I think that you're right uh, that they're not as pro-free trade, uh, which is less traditional conservative, which was always been the party of free trade. But, you know, I think that is a function of the fact that we pursued a bipartisan free trade agenda for a long time. And we'd say things like, well, you know, NAFTA's great because there's no net job loss. And it's like, I'm sorry if you're living in Lordstown, Ohio, there's a net job loss for you. And there are a lot of voters in this country, you know, who said, I'm sorry, my not only is my job gone, my neighbor's job's gone, everybody's jobs in my neighborhood is gone, and my community has gone to hell because of your free trade agenda. And so I think in a democracy, we have to take that into account. We have to pursue free trade, but we have to pursue it in a way that, that is balanced by a concern for the dislocations of the, of those people. And those people, nobody, neither party was listening to them, and they spoke up. Right. We understand that. We've talked about this a thousand times, and those are the political dynamics at play. But what does that mean for conservative but, ideas? But I'm not saying, but I'm saying a lot of what they believe in is conservative. I well, think. you mean because they're pro-life. Uh, I think that's definitely one part of it. See, that's not my kind of conservative. Okay, but I'm sorry. Well, that was Ronald Reagan's kind of conservative, who's your hero. So uh, you tolerate that. You guys can't see me sticking my tongue out at Mark, but I am. Oh, well, they imagine it all the time. (laughs) But, I mean, look, they're pro-life, yes, but they're also pro-family. They're pro-parents being in charge of their kids' education. They're pro-government spending. They're they're pro Okay, so it's a different element. Look, here's the reality is that there's been a shift in the parties. The Democratic Party has now has lost the working class and become the party of coastal elites and radical minorities. And the Republican Party has become the party of the working class and small business. And I'm comfortable with that. We have to make some adjustments. But they're, they're, these are the people who are standing up and saying, I want law and order in, in my cities. That's a very traditional conservative point of view. Uh, these are the people who are sa- standing up and saying, I want to be in charge of my kids' education and not some government bureaucrats or woke teachers teachers' unions being in charge. That's very conservative. And they want economic growth. They want a growing economy that's creating a lot of jobs, which we had before the pandemic hit. And they are, as most Americans have been, even under Ronald Reagan, reluctant internationalists. If you look at the polls, the American people, including the majority of Republicans, though there's a significant minority, definitely support Ukraine. They don't want us fighting in Ukraine. They don't want American troops fighting in Ukraine, but they want to help the Ukrainians win. So I think the heart of the Republican Party and even a lot of these voters is still in favor of freedom. But they've done is they stood up and stomped their foot and said, we're not going to just let you, you know, pointy nose geeks in Washington who think you know everything about economics run roughshod over our communities and not pay attention to us when your policies hurt us. And I think we need to find a way to marry those two. Well, that, think, that's the challenge. Yeah. Though. That's the challenge. We can't, but 
we can't. But we because can't do it by saying un- you, you people don't matter. We just end up being a better, more modern back, version of the Democratic Party. You go back Party. to Lordstown and and you just fall in line because this is what conservatism is. We well, can't do that in this country. What makes us different from Great Britain? What makes us different from every European country is it's we the people who decide. Our constitution is the people give power to the government and authority of the government, not the other way around. And so they're our bosses. And so we have to listen to them and we have to take that into account. Yeah, fair enough. But as you say, what the problem in the UK has has actually derived from the fact that it's very difficult to reconcile those two things, which is why you've had these wild swings. Very, very hard. And the fact that our parties haven't figured this out, haven't started talking about it intelligently, haven't started really thinking about it sort of in a doctrinal sense at all, but are just flying by the seat of their pants, you know, hey, no money for Ukraine, or yeah, money for Ukraine, or hey, lower taxes, oh no, let's spend more, is is a bad thing for our country. It would be good to start to try to reconcile those things. But I guess we are at a think tank, so, you know, maybe, maybe we're... Maybe that's our job. Maybe that's our job. <laughs> anyway, Mark, do your spiel about if you're still listening to us. <laughs> Danny's laughing at me. Uh, if you're still listening to the podcast right now, that means you like us, I hope, um, or at least you're interested, even if you disagree with Danny and me or both or individually. But either way, if you're still here, push that subscribe button, please. Make sure that this podcast comes in your inbox every week and share it with your friends and let everybody know so they can join as well. There you go. Well done, Mark. Thank Thanks, you. everyone. Take care. Bye. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 